Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Von Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine. In each issue, we feature in-depth interviews, narrated essays, and stories exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. In this vibrant conversation, poet and author Forrest Gander interviews Richard Powers about his acclaimed new novel, The Overstory. Recorded in a packed barn on a Sunday afternoon in Point Reyes Station, the two Pulitzer Prize-winning authors reflect on continuity, kinship, and proximity with the living world, advocating a radical reimagining of the novel that moves away from the centering of human characters Powers speaks of a new ethic that includes an understanding that there is no separate thing called us and no separate thing called wilderness. So, um, we're sitting about an hour away from some redwoods of the sort that I'm betting even Richard Powers has never seen before. Not Sequoia semivirens, but Sequoia langsdorfii. Huge redwoods that were petrified in ash some 3.4 million years ago when the eruptions that formed Mount St. Helena rocked this very place. I wanted Richard to give you, at the beginning of this conversation, while we're still friends, Uh, a little piece of a 3.4 million year old redwood, the extinct Sequoia Langsdorfi, as a gift from your California fans and from the family that run the petrified forest in Calistoga. (laughs) You're supposed to end with this. I'm not gonna be able to do this now. Oh my God. Look at this. Oh, the TSA is going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> I have the box with a label on it. We can, we can mail it back to you. I am absolutely overwhelmed. Mm. Oh, this is, this is unreal. Mm. Oh, my God. So always do your events with the geologist, I guess. <laughs> well, in previous centuries, vivisectionists, uh, of, of which the philosopher Descartes was one, claimed that although a dog struggles and yelps when you tie it to a table, cut it open, and clutch its beating heart, its gestures aren't intentional, but merely automated nervous responses. In fact, you still can't scientifically prove the dog feels pain, quote, unquote, like we do. Although our attitudes about vivisection have slowly changed, despite that animals are still abused relentlessly for science and industry, scientists continue to express similar claims about trees now. Sure, trees send signals, but not as warnings, they say. Trees don't talk. A tree has no intentionality. It doesn't have a consciousness like ours. And so the intimations of the overstory might be called romantically anthropomorphized. Have you been coming up against arguments like that? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm darn proud to come up against arguments like that. Um, it's such a beautiful way to start. Hmm. Uh, 
the question did come up. Uh, the question of sentience did come up yesterday in an event that I did with Bill McKibben in, in the city at, at uh, JCC. And I told the story about being a student and having my professor tell me that animals don't have emotions. And I, I don't know the date on the, the quote that you read, but it was still persistent, you know, un, un, even beyond my tenure as an undergrad. And it was really only a very brave cadre of researchers who decided to withstand the contempt of consensual wisdom and begin to look and say, you know, rather, rather than describe what we know to be true and, and find a lack of evidence to support what we believe, why don't we actually make those measurements? And, and now, as you know, the field of animal emotions is a, is a burgeoning one. And I, I, just, I just finished a remarkable book that, that goes through every possible human-exclusive characteristic and finds analogs in the, in the animal world. Uh, that the, 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 the prohibition against anthropomorphism played a useful role in the history of science when empiricism was still not institutionally matured enough to withstand the kind of philosophical overlay that was quite common and the, the propensity to see analogs to ourselves was actually preventing people from making repeatable measurements. That day has long since passed. And interestingly, that prohibition shaded into its complementary opposite. So, so rigid was that prohibition that a researcher was not allowed to see what he or she was looking at because of that prohibition, and, and nor to make those measurements. Right? And the upshot is that over the course of time, that proscription turned from a, a proscription against anthropomorphism to anthrocentrism, mm -hmm. the belief that nothing could resemble us and an overemphasis on the differences between us and the rest of the living world. And I think you know, the more sophisticated we've become about genomics, the, the more we realize that gap is untenable. It just, it, you, you name a quality and to jump over you know, between us and you know, between the humans and the non-humans, becomes easier and easier to find once we start looking. Um, I was telling a story in the overstory about the next stage in that transformation. The increasing ability to see not separation between us and the rest of the living world, but continuity and kinship and proximity. And I tell the story of a researcher who does some of the first measurements on a kind of tree behavior that would have made her 
contemporaries extremely nervous. And in fact, in the story that I tell, she gets the rigorous data set, she presents it, she overlays an interpretive uh, matrix on it, and she is humiliated and, and mocked and driven from the field by the alpha male gatekeepers who say, as my professor said to me, you're reading into this. So when people say the book is a little woo-woo, you know, the, the, um, the, the, there, is a, there is a desire to see kinship there, I, I, I just, I wear that badge with some honor because it is, this, it is the recovery of our place among the species of the, of the globe that is absolutely necessary if we mean to stick around here much longer. Yeah. Oh, don't clap yet. We still have 45 minutes to go. <laughs> I want to connect that sense of honor that you feel later to, to ethics. But um, what you said about uh, anthropomorphism makes me think of a, there's a poet in Berkeley named John Shoptaw who's been writing about anthropophobia and just the fear of seeing how much we actually do share with other living systems. Oh, yeah. And as you say, the, you know, the, the DNA that we share even with trees. I, I thought that word an anthropophobia was describing how I felt when I hike in the Smokies and I see somebody in camel coming toward me on the train. <laughs> I'm never afraid of the quadrupeds. So it's the bipeds that kind of make my heart stand. That's funny, yeah. <laughs> C.D. Wright has a, has a book on trees called Casting Deep Shade. Um, she says, she meet, she, she's on a plane, on a flight back from California to D.C., and this quote, I asked the young man seated next to me, a Malik's tree service patch on his khaki shirt pocket, studying a book with a man on the cover straddling the branches of a eucalyptus. What made you decide to get into tree work? Let's see, he said. I thought to myself, I like nature, I like to climb things, and I love power tools. It's <laughs> 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 your bi biped. <laughs> um, so uh, while some people claimed that the overstory errs from scientific objectivity, as we just discussed, to fulfill the demands of creative fiction, a few others have claimed just the opposite, that the overstory isn't a novel at all. They claim that a good novel, good literature, doesn't advocate a cause the way the overstory does. In one notorious review, Nathaniel Rich pointedly avers that advocacy is, quote, the opposite of literature. And since that's the case, that advocacy is the opposite of literature, Richard, I wanted to ask you where you think the people in this audience should reshelve The Grapes of Wrath, Beloved, The Jungle, <laughs> All Quiet on the Western Front, To Kill a Mockingbird, Things Fall Apart, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Bob Dylan's song, Hurricane. <laughs> is advocacy that different from a point of view? And the list goes on forever. I mean, even when a, when a book is steeped in that tradition of dialogical moral ambiguity, that doesn't mean it's not advocating for something. I mean, Pride and Prejudice advocates for something. 
It advocates for tolerance, right? And, and abeyance of judgment and expand, you know, I, I, I'm glad to get the chance to, to, to say something about that. I mean, we, we never really do, right? These things come and go and they're part of the public record and, and uh, you're obligated to sit there in the woods and fume a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like this, the, I'm gonna take a, a little moment to establish something, which is what has happened to the humanist literary novel in the West in the last couple of centuries? that makes Nathaniel Rich's presupposition a kind of consensual baseline. In grade school, Mrs. Ferlet taught us that there are three kinds of drama. Maybe some of you had this formula too. I'm gonna to update her language so that she's not sent to uh, sexism prison. But uh, a, a person against his or herself is a, is a psychological drama. You, you hold a certain value, and a situation comes up, and some other value that you also hold deeply splits away from it, and you don't know how to solve that. They're, they're both necessary to you, but they're incommensurable to each other. I dearly love this man, I want to be faithful to our friendship forever, but there's something he needs to know. And should I stay loyal and say nothing, or should I tell him the truth? That's a great psychological story, and we, we tell it again and again and again. The other level of drama would be a person against another person, or a group of people versus another group of people. And beautiful, deep, resonant, heartbreaking novels have been built around this notion of Mutual defensibility, inimical, impossible to, to reconcile defensible values, right? And I invoke Jane Austen, she's the master of that. You, you say, he, she's right, but he's right, right? And as you're reading the chapter, she knows how to sucker you, and so you, you make complete identification with a system that's absolutely sympathetic, and then you do it again, and black becomes white and white becomes black. And you say, oh my God, how does the human heart reconcile this? And the answer is, with humility and sympathy and tolerance, but not effectively, right? <laughs> and and you know, that, that happens again and again. I mean, you, you are absolutely committed to uh, freedom, and I am absolutely committed to equality, and we are going to recapitulate the tragedy of American politics, you know, and try to figure out between us whether there was a quid pro quo. And, you know, it just, there, there's no, right, I mean, and, and the kind of novel that Rich knows about, he, he knows how to write and he knows how to read, is that kind of beautiful novel, where you, you, your heart has to be rearranged. And you do not know what the author, the, the, where, there, there's no ultimate resolution of that moral ambiguity. There's a third kind of drama that has largely disappeared from Western literature, Western literary fiction, in the last 200 years. It's a kind of drama that 
the science fiction people never gave up. It's the kind of drama that indigenous literature and non-Western literature never gave up. But the drama is based on to be a human is to want certain things. To live in the world is to acknowledge that life has different goals, purposes, desire, that, that what we would like the world to be, the living world, and what the living world can accommodate are not reconcilable always. And that drama, Mrs. Ferlet called it man against the elements, right? Um, is alien to us now. When we see it, it's, it's, or, or, it's, it's, actually, it's actually made a huge comeback for, for an obvious reason. Uh, but for a long time, when anyone wrote in that form, it, you know, it had a, the smacking of, you know, it felt nostalgic or, or archaic, you know, a kind of uh, period piece, sort of, you know, Jack London-y. Um, but the reason we stopped telling that story is that we thought we had won the war against everything else. That it wasn't a drama anymore because we were in charge. And now we're realizing not only did we not win that war, but we're in profound danger of being driven entirely from the battlefield. You could make an argument that moral ambiguity isn't as important in that third kind of story. You could also make an argument that moral ambiguity is a prior commitment to a kind of individualist, human exceptionalist, commodity-mediated worldview. In the fiction of Nathaniel Rich, there is no meaning except the meaning that each person makes privately and contingently and synthetically for his or herself. That's, it's not a controversial position. In fact, most people in our culture would probably say, yes, that's true. The course of writing this book for me was the course of realizing that I had completely assimilated that position, and it might not be true. It might be a late-day cultural invention that's killing us. And the, the, you know, if you asked an American what would be a meaningful life, the question would, first of all, maybe embarrass the person, right? And there would be some hemming and hawing. But in reality, as we flip through our brains and say, what do I want by the end? You know, what, what do I need by the finish line? We often come up with Rockefeller's answer to that question, how much is enough? A little bit more. And in that world of humanism, you know, individualism, exceptionalism, where you know, we are not accountable to anybody but ourselves, the source of meaning is usually appetite. I just want to make my life a little better, a little richer, a, you know, a little more you know, well-appointed. I wanted to write a book that didn't start with a prior commitment to the idea that we were separate from all other living things, that, uh, that didn't start with the idea that meaning was always private and always invented and always contingent. I wanted to start with this idea that meaning is out there. 
and, and, and we're a, a small part of something enormous. And it could be deeply meaningful to us to try to come back home and try to rehabilitate and reconstitute our relationship to that place. At which point, this need to show, yes, but what about the loggers, goes away. Right? That's not the drama anymore. It's not about the rightness, the, 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 the small tr transient and ephemeral rightness in all people. It's saying, we're faced with a desperate task, which is to remember what most people in the world, for most of human history, knew. Namely, you can't tell our story without asking the neighbors what their story is. Can't understand us without understanding the beyond us. Right? And if that's advocacy, I, I advocate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that sense of um, meaning is invested in an ethics and perhaps a, a spirituality. Um, it's, it's religious, actually, oddly. Not necessarily theistic, but you know, it, religious in the etymological sense of the word religion, which is religio, to tie back together, right? That's, that's what this book is about, saying we've lived for commodity, and we have to remember how to live for community. It's that, it's that, that's the story. Well, you sort of answered my question before I asked it. I would love you to but, ask it, because your questions are but more I get beautiful to, than yeah, my answers. There's a, there's a guy up in Berkeley, one of our best literary critics, named Charles Altieri, who notes that in the overstory, quote, Richard Powers concentrates on human efforts to ally the big picture that enables trees to become exemplary sources for what life on this planet might be like. In the, goes on, in the formulation of a new ethics. And so my question, which we already know the answer to now, <laughs> but that he might elaborate on a little more, would be, would the adoption of such a new ethics be dissimilar from the cultivation of a new basis for religious states like awe and willful self-surrender. And I ask because he, in the book, he describes the recalibration of ethics as, quote, what he just did here, a kind of religious conversion, a system of meaning that doesn't begin and end with humans. That's spectacular. Yeah. Why isn't, yeah, this, why, that's why isn't, you wrote it. <laughs> No, but, but your, your original no. citation, why yeah. isn't he writing for The Atlantic? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> no, so, so that's the starting point, but it's important to remember, and I'll reiterate it, that this is not a new thing, right? It's just the revival of an old thing. Can we use the technology of the modern literary novel to embody in a powerful way the things that myth and legend and allegory knew. And even literary fiction up to a point. I mean, what, you know, th this critical uh, formulation would apply to Moby Dick, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really just saying we've taken a colossal wrong turn. And we need to, first of all, identify that we have deeply assimilated that 
state of mind without necessarily thinking that it, it is arbitrary. Just in, in one of the intertexts for the book is Ovid and the Metamorphosis. Let me sing to you now about things becoming other things. And I really think of Ovid, and I mean, you, you're probably more in a position to know whether this is historically valid. I think of him be, at the beginning of this wrong turn, the beginning of this human exceptionalist modernist term, turn, saying, but wait, I'm going to bring the old stories out to remind you. So when you're on the other side of this spectacular emigration, you'll, you'll remember that the kinship is actually a lot closer than you want it to be or than, than, than you're continuing to admit. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, and I don't know how you would make that case historically, but it, it, in those stories, the reason they become this kind of uh, ground-based motif throughout the book is it's precisely that. You know, and, and my, you know, my tree researcher, the one that gets drummed out of her field for, for doing this research that looks slightly anthropomorphic, you know, she ends up writing, you know, writing a, a, a popular book describing the, these revolutions in new forestry that have been happening over the last 50 years, over-the-air communication, underground resource sharing, cross-species transfer of, of, of food and medicine. You know, Medicare for all, underground. <laughs> um, you know, she, she opens her book by saying, it may or may not mean anything to you to, to realize this, but you and that tree in your backyard share about a quarter of your genes. Right? Maybe that statistic isn't sufficient to start the idea of kinship, but let me tell you some more stories. Let me tell you about things becoming other things. Avid, the, the line I remember, lente, lente, corite, nactus, equi. Uh, slowly, slowly run the horses of the night. So you just mentioned in the beginning of that answer, you referenced modern literature. I'm sort of, I'm very interested in the way that you're changing it. Uh, a radical genre of international writing that's come to be called eco-poetics has developed as a response to the kind of nature writing that was described to me once by the poet Aga Shahid Ali as, the author goes outside, sees a periwinkle, has an orgasm, comes inside and writes a poem about it. <laughs> um, Eco-poetry is said to be concerned with a reimagination of the ethics of our relationship to nature, of, of, of which, of course, we're a part. You've re radically reimagined the traditional no novel centered on human characters. Of course, there are a lot of human characters in the overstory, um, but you've made trees the central ones, and humans are in intertwined with trees in every way, and each main character linked to a specific tree in the same way that the characters in the film adaptation of The English Patient are linked by sound editor Walter Murch in the movie, to particular bird calls. Can you talk about how you dealt with the risks of this major adjustment in the, the modern approach to the novel? Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of had to stumble toward the form that the book finally took. Um, 
my, my religious conversion came very late in life. You know, I was 55 years old and pretty much totally tree blind. And I had this moment of recognition here in California in, in the Central Peninsula while teaching at Stanford that I didn't understand human history, that I'd written 11 novels over the course of 35 years. And the, peop the, the, the creatures that were doing the heavy lifting were never mentioned. Right? And, and you know, it was, the, it was walking in the redwoods above Silicon Valley, you know, to escape that incredible go-go culture of, of valley and, and, and seeing a 1,300, 1,400-year-old redwood and realizing that the Santa Cruz Mountains would have been covered in them until we got to them to build San Francisco and to build Leland Stanford's railroad and the realization that Silicon Valley was down there inventing the future because of these trees were up here. That's a radically rethinking. I mean, we, as, as all good colonial enterprises you know, go, we, we, the, the, the people who are making it possible are invisible. Right? And, and it was that realization that started me thinking about, first of all, the, the, the most urgent thing wasn't how to get a book out of it. Right? The most urgent thing was how to get a life out of it. And once I began that task of discrimination and attention and presence, it was overwhelming. And, I, and, the, and the stories just started to pour out of me. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a novel where all the characters, all the central protagonists are trees. And it was, there was a challenge associated with that. I mean, you know, when, when they live for centuries and they don't move. <laughs> it's hard to make it a page turner. You know? um, but that wasn't actually the reason why I gave that up, because I think, I think someone with sufficient you know, imagination or poetic skill could, could make that compelling. What made me give it up was the realization that actually I didn't want to tell a story that was exclusively about trees any more than I wanted to write a, another novel that was exclusively about people. I mean, if the, if the whole point of breaking down human exceptionalism is to say there is no separate thing called us and no separate thing called wilderness, then I needed a form where these protagonists could be on an equal footing. And that required certain inventions, plot points, that allowed for radical refocalization. You know, I start the book with the tale of a European immigrant who um, comes to Iowa in the late 1850s and discovers that he's accidentally carried along with him a pocket full of chestnuts from New York. And he plants them on his farm in Iowa, way out of the, the native range of, of the American chestnut. And the, the, the chapter in, in about 30 pages tries to show this tree unfolding at its own rate while the generation, the kind of Buddenbrooks-like family saga, rises and falls, almost like you know, stop action in the foreground of this tree. So that, you know, that required a certain amount of seduction. You know, the, the, the father of, of the researcher, Patricia, who we were talking about earlier, says, you know, it's Adam's curse. We only are interested in things that are about our size, that move at about our speed, 
and live at about our, our time frame, right? And, and that's true. And it's really hard to make what seems like the unmoving background be the dynamic foreground, you know, to switch the, 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 the scales. But the, the, the book was a constant struggle to try to, to find ways of putting these two time frames and material scales uh, against each other and find, find, finding ways of narrating that in a compelling way. Do you think what you learned in writing that book will affect the way that you write your next books? Oh, you know, I, I am such a different person than, than when I started it that, uh, it, you know, this is my 12th novel, and every previous time when I finished a novel, I was so exhausted with the subject matter that I was looking forward to reinventing myself by choosing another subject and going into, a, you know, a completely different, uh, area of, you know, domain of, of expertise or knowledge or, or self-fashioning. This is the first time that I've finished a novel where I just want to write this novel again, you know, <laughs> or, or, or at, least, at least to find another way to dramatize what the challenges that this book puts forward. What would that shift in consciousness look like? How does it come about? How, you know, what are the threats against it? How is it sustained? And how different would the world be if we got to a threshold where that sensibility started to get traction? That's, that's what I'm working on now. I, I, I do say I, I, feel, I feel a different relationship to productivity now, though. You know? I, the book actually moved me to a new place in the country. Um, I kept reading about how little old growth th th there is left. There's, there's not very much in the West. You know, five, five percent of the Western forests can be called primary forests. In the East, it's like one percent. And I'm an Easterner, and you know, w when I went back after, after my time in California, and, and kept reading, you know, if, if you, if you want to see old growth forest, there are only a very few spots. One great spot is the Smoky Mountains. It, it's probably the largest contiguous extant primary forest left in the states, about a quarter of the park. And I thought, well, I have to see that, because I'm writing this book about old growth and about how, you know, how different, qualitatively different old growth is from what happens after we get to it as a commodity, which would be interesting to come back to. But um, I went down there just to see it, and I rented a yurt, a word I very much enjoy saying. Um, <laughs> And I spent three days down there, and I hiked up this trail that went through the recovering forest for a few miles and into an uncut area. I, I wasn't especially tree literate yet. This was kind of early on in my, in my conversion. Um, but you don't have to be. Because the minute you cross that threshold, you've probably felt this out west, the minute you go over that threshold, it looks different, and it smells different, and it sounds different. The quality of light is different. The species count goes way up. And, you, and I stood there in this forest thinking, this is, this is it. You know, this is my country. This is my patrimony. I, I'd never seen a healthy, functioning eastern forest. 
and here it is. Not only the, the way it was before the Europeans came, but because the Cherokee nurturing of the forest was so light, the way it was at the last ice age. And it was so haunting that eight months later, I was still thinking about it. And I thought, well, that's got to tell you something. And so I went back, and I bought a house nearby, and I've been living there ever since. And that's a long way around saying, I used to, you know, for, for the 40 years that I was publishing these dozen novels, I used to think, if I don't get my thousand words a day, I'm a fraud, you know, and I'm not earning my keep here and, and you know, pulling my weight. And now I just think, if I don't get my four miles a day, <laughs> it's not a good day. <laughs> You know, um, there are a lot of novels in the world, and, and the government should probably have a, a parody program to, to, to pay a lot of us to keep our fields out of circulation. But um, uh, more than that, though, more seriously, there's nothing like walking. And, and walking in a complex ecosystem, being part of a multi-species affair, you know, I, I can't get to four miles usually without feeling like I gotta get home because there's something that, need, that I need to write down now. So it's not an either or. I mean, the, the two activities are very closely knit for me now. Yeah, I know that I was always more attracted to Coleridge than to Wordsworth. And Wordsworth, they both wrote their poems um, moving, but Wordsworth inside a house, he just walked back and forth, back and forth. And, Coleridge outside, and I got to walk where Coleridge walked and thought, yeah, that's why they're better. <laughs> By the way, th this is a fabulous venue, and, and I love this man, and I'm deeply enjoying you know, just being here, partly because I go home tomorrow after a, a week of touring, but partly because Forrest took me out with a, with a group of friends for, for a couple hours in the park, and I just feel like I mean, the, the, that just being there made, made this the, 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 the most satisfying day, you know, since, since being in my own woods. Come back to California. Yeah. No. We love you. And I'll tell you, it's, it, it's got some deep visceral hooks in it. There's a, there, you know, when you're walking along and you get a whiff of that bay laurel, you just oh, think, how did nice. I ever leave yeah. this place? So you note in the overstory that during the great, since we're talking sort of about forest care and uh, how uh, the natives handled it with fire, um, you note in the overstory that during the great chestnut blight, the U.S. Forest Service encouraged the cutting of chestnuts, a wholesale destructive activity that eliminated the chestnuts that might have carried immunities to the blight. Even now, as we see in a very recent New Yorker article, the Forest Service favors clear-cutting of burned forests and systematic cutting and burning of underbrush. But a lot of scientists and writers, like our local activist writer Maya Kosla, think that such Forest Service policies, which have been so profitable to the timber industry, are disastrous ways to deal with either healthy or burned forests. How do you weigh in on, on that? First of all, don't forget raking, as the president <laughs> reminds us, how important that is in forest health. Yeah. Um, so, 
you've identified this revolution, and, and it's, still, it's still being contested, um, between what's called old forestry and new forestry. And when forestry became a, a formal discipline, it was really predicated on this belief that an old forest was what they call decadent. That you had to go in there and get those old things out, right? To make room for the new to grow, because a young tree grew fast and vigorous, and thinning a forest was a great way to, to increase forest health. And of course, the, the, the undeclared variable, you know, the tacit, the hidden variable, was health for us, right? It made that community a more harvestable commodity more exploitable commodity. All the dis discoveries that I alluded to earlier, and further discoveries, for instance, the recent complete overhaul of how much wood, how much carbon old trees are sequestering, how much new wood an old mature tree puts on, been completely revolutionized by, again, just by being present to what's actually going on there, not what you want to have going on there. Um, and it's still playing out I'm not an expert, you know, I'm a novelist. I only, I only play a forester you know, <laughs> in the book. Um, so I, I'm not the authority you should listen to, but I'll tell you there are amazingly persuasive people who say, you know, we don't actually yet appreciate the deep reciprocal interconnected complexities of forest as a superorganism. We shouldn't kid ourselves too much about how much we're able to improve the health of something that's been around for hundreds of millions of years before we even showed up. Um, it's in, the, the thing that I, I think is not controversial, uh, something that uh, Joan Maloof opened my eyes to, she's written a number of really good books on forests, and especially old girls, is that no human being ever in, in, in history has seen an old growth forest come back from a cut forest. It's just never happened. You ne you know, you, 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 we have yet to see the species count, the deep imbrication and net, you know, networked connections of an old growth forest from anything that's been cut. Now you, you can also acknowledge, because there is no separate thing called humans and no separate thing called nature, that every forest has been shaped by Homo sapiens since we showed up, right? But that's a different thing from saying, let's take it down to the ground, and then we'll have young, vigorous trees coming back, and that will be healthier, right? This, this, this kind of connectivity of a forest that, that I alluded to earlier is a startling revision of our understanding of the evolution of an ecosystem. The, some of you will know about uh, Suzanne Simmert's work, uh, mycorrhizal connection. Food and nutrients are not just being passed back and forth between trees of the same species. They're being passed across, across the species barrier. A Douglas fir and a birch tree are keeping each other alive. Right? And, and, and those kinds of deep connections, first of all, they, they reveal to us that we have a gross misunderstanding of natural selection based almost exclusively on, on the belief that the, 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 by far the prevailing in, in influence on selection is competition. 
This belief challenges that, or these observations challenge that and say there are acts of cooperation to match every act of competition. It's a startling rethinking about the forest itself as a living thing right? at, at, the, at the ecosystem level. Um, that, to, to me, the important, the missing, the thing that we've been missing in our understanding of, of the way that the non-human works, and interestingly, we've used that misunderstanding to justify our own social constructions, lies with the gross misunderstanding of the idea of the survival of the fittest. We think that means the survival of the most of the, of, of the most dominant or the strongest somehow. Fittest means most deeply adapted to environment. And what we're just getting in recent decades is let's remember that environment is not some neutral geophysical thing. It's other living things. The environment that all life is adapting to is all other life. So survival of the fittest means the continuation of those organisms that are most deeply interwoven and imbricated with the other organisms that it shares its immediate locale with. And that's cooperation as much as competition. I mean, you can, you can think of predator-prey relationships in a different way when you start thinking about that. Right? Mm -hmm. I forget the question. I've wandered a little far. <laughs> there, so. so I want, uh, I want Richard to read something. Um, I had a question that I wanted to ask him uh, about poetry in his novels. Basically, in, in, mo in almost all of Richard's novels, there are poetry references. But for poets, there's some troubling references in this novel. Uh -oh. Like, <clears throat> you know, most of the great poetry mentioned in this novel is being um, read by an unstable man to a stabled horse. <laughs> I'm not going to make Richard ask why that's the case and what that says about Milton. Or but it, it says that the difference between the human and the non-human is less than we think. Uh -huh, that horse liked Milton. Yeah. <laughs> but this might be a good opportunity for you to read a little bit from your... And indeed, this question of speaking to the non-human comes up in this passage. And one thing that I want to say in advance of that is you listen to this woman struggling at first self-consciously and then quite willingly with the idea of direct address to a tree is something that David Abram pointed out to me, the, 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 the author of The Spell of the Sensuous and other wonderful books. He says, when I talk to a tree, no, I'm not expecting an answer, and no, I don't think it understands me or is going to alter its behavior in the slightest. What happens when I speak to a tree is that tree changes in me from being an object to being a subject. And I am learning how to extend to that tree kinship and I'm learning how to give that tree a kind of sanctity that we ordinarily only give to ourselves. And, and I've built this passage around a, 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 an indigenous form of prayer that was quite common in the Pacific Northwest. This is my researcher 
who I alluded to earlier, arriving for the first time uh, on this coast, a little bit north of here. In 1981, Patricia heads northwest. Giants still grow in pockets of old growth scattered from Northern California up to Washington. She wants to see what uncut forest looks like while there's still some left. The Western Cascades in a damp September. Nothing prepares her. From mid distance, without any scale, the trees seem no larger than the biggest tulip poplars back east. But up close, she's lost in measurements opposite. All she can do is laugh and look some more. Hemlock, grand fir, Douglas fir, buttressed monster conifers disappear above her, sporting burls as big as minivans. Even the runts would dominate an eastern forest. Down in the understory, Patricia's own body seems freakishly small, like one of those acorn people she made in childhood. Clicks and chatter disturb the hush. The air is so twilight green, she might be underwater. It rains particles, spore clouds, broken webs and mammal dander, skeletonized mites, bits of insect frass and bird feather. If she holds still, vines will overrun her. She walks deeper in, crunching 10,000 invertebrates with every step, watching for tracks in a place where the indigenous language uses the same word for footprint and understanding. The temperature plummets as she passes through a thermal curtain. She swings her sting singing stick before her. The canopy is a colander stippling the beetle swarm surfaces. Sword fern, liverworts, lichen, things with leaves as small as sand grains stain every inch of the dank logs. The mosses are thumbnail forests all their own. More bushwhacking reveals the prodigious rot. Creature-riddled bowls crumbling for centuries. Snags, gothic and twisted, silver as inverted icicles. She presses on a fissure of bark, and her finger sinks in. Fecund putrefaction fills her lungs. The sheer mass of ever-dying life packed into each cubic foot, woven together by fungal filaments and dew-betrayed spiderweb leaves her woozy. Mushrooms ladder up the sides of trunks. Soaked by fog all winter long, spongy green bays she can't name coats every wooden pillar to a height well above her head. The forest pulls her along, past the trunk of an immense western red cedar. Her hand pats the fibrous strips of a trunk whose fluted girth rivals the height of an eastern dogwood. It reeks of incense. The top has sheared off, replaced by a candelabra of boughs promoted to stand-in trunks. A grotto opens at ground level in the rotted hardwood, large enough to house whole families of mammals. 
She addresses the cedar in the phrases of this forest's first humans. Long life maker, I'm here, down here. She feels foolish, but each word is a little easier than the next. Thank you for the baskets and the boxes. Thank you for the capes and hats and skirts. Thank you for the cradles, the beds, the diapers, canoes, paddles, harpoons and nets, poles, logs, posts, the rot-proof shakes and shingles, the kindling that will always light. Finding no good reason to quit now, she lets the goods spill out. Thank you for the tools, the chests, the decking, the doors and floors, the beams and paneling, I forget. Thank you, she says, following the ancient formula for all these gifts that you have given. And still not knowing how to stop, she adds, we're sorry, we didn't know how long it takes for you to grow back. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.